Hello, everybody. Today is Thursday, July 16th, and today we're going to be talking about China. Before we do that, Tug, what are we drinking today? We're drinking Basil Hayden's Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Uh, this is a favorite of my good friend Ben Katz, uh, and it's actually made with more rye than uh, what's usually found in bourbon. Uh, so it actually started back in 1796 in, as you can guess, Kentucky. It's a pretty good drink so far. I haven't had, what, more than one or two tastes. So I'm going to have to uh, get a little bit more acquainted with it. I'm sure we will be doing that throughout the podcast. So enjoy and uh, have fun. Cheers, boys. All right, guys, today's topic, China. Um, for this episode, we're going to start by kind of outlining some of the differences between the United States and China, and then we'll touch on some of the hot-button topics like the trade war, the difference in the currencies, Huawei, TikTok, et cetera, and so forth. So uh, let's get right into it. Tug, I know you want to talk about the differences between the U.S. and China, so take it away. Thanks, Ben. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's obvious differences between the United States uh, and China from an economic and historical standpoint. Uh, China has been, uh, generally speaking, a centralized uh, state since you know 4,000 years ago. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of different pitfalls and, and peaks throughout their history, uh, whereas in the U.S., obviously, has a, a shorter runway, was born in the Enlightenment era, uh, the ideas of individualism really has kind of fueled the way that the economies have been shaped. Uh, and so you're looking more in the United States at free markets, uh, individual innovation, more risk taking. Whereas in China, uh, like I said, you're going to see more centralization. Uh, in their case, they're more uh, policy oriented in terms of controlling certain outcomes that happen. They're not as focused on free markets. Uh, and ultimately, uh, when we're looking at comparing the United States to China in, in terms of their development as economies, China is still very much ex export focused, manufacturing focused, um, also focused a lot more, I guess, on large centralized projects for energy, um, you know, even healthcare is more centralized there, um, railway systems, et cetera. The United States is more decentralized, operates as a republic, has free markets and a more free exchange of goods, services and securities. Um, and then you're also looking at the fact that the U.S. is focused more on innovate, innovating within high finance, uh, high technology, uh, and ultimately that has created more issues between the nations as globalization has expanded across the globe. Yeah, Tug, and on that note of globalization, I think globalization has really led to this scenario that we're seeing right now, um, where the U.S. is largely a services-oriented economy that relies pretty heavily on imports, and China is, is still very largely oriented around exports and manufacturing. Um, and, and this is something that is kind of 
built up from a political standpoint to what we're seeing in the headlines right now about the trade war and what we've seen over the past year, year and a half. Um, right now, there's a massive trade deficit between the United States and China. And that essentially means that the U.S. buys significantly more goods from China than China buys from us. And the actual numbers behind that are U.S. buys essentially around $500 billion per year from China, whereas China is only buying around $100 billion of goods from us every year. And so that $400 billion, or that, excuse me, that $400 billion is going into China's pocket pocket from a, a surplus perspective, um, which isn't necessarily beneficial to the U.S. from a long-term trade standpoint. Um, so we see Trump hammering the trade war all the time. We hear a lot about it. We see a lot of headlines about it. But like, if we're talking about what the real motivations here are, um, I would say that there's a couple. Obviously, at the very high level, there's reducing that trade deficit, trying to bring that to more of a balance um, and create a system that is beneficial equally to both parties longer term. Um, but on top of that, Trump has touted a lot about uh, bringing back jobs. Obviously, if Chinese or if China has access to cheaper labor and have like these lower prices from a manufacturing and exporting standpoint, U.S. companies and individuals are going to tend to buy those things because it's it's a lot easier on our wallets. Um, so. With the trade war, if you're applying tariffs to those products, every time they're imported, they get an additional 15, 20, 25 percent charge, whatever the tariff is at a given moment, which makes it a little bit more price comparable to goods that are manufactured in the United States, which would theoretically um, cause more people to be buying domestically. And if you're buying domestically, there will have to be more jobs to then provide those goods and services. So that's the thought there. Um, and then finally, like, from a global stage perspective, um, China has obviously grown really, really quickly over the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, they were actually a really poor country for a really long time. And they, especially once globalization really took full force, have massively escalated and compounded on um, their position as an, as an economy. Um, and this is really the United States kind of taking a stand against one of the economies that is threatening to overtake them from a, a size perspective, right? Like China has become a very respectable um, adversary on the global stage. And the U.S. wants to say like, hey, we're still the big dog. Like you can't come into our territory and mess with us. Um, and so this is just one way of asserting our power and kind of getting into that world a little bit as well. And it's really interesting to really look at the heart of what the Chinese economic policy has been uh, since Ben, you, you mentioned the the large transformation uh, into a, a global superpower uh, over the last 30 to 35 years. And that really started uh, with uh, the premier uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, in the 1980s. Uh, he exercised a lot of uh, market reforms uh, that started to kind of break down certain uh, communist measures that were really held tight to the CCP. And it, I think it's a similar way that you'd look at perestroika uh, in the decommunization of Russia or the Soviet Union at the time. So uh, at the heart of China, though, is still a, a somewhat collective nature and a very involved centralized government uh, led by a one party state. Um, so industrial policy is the uh, in general terms, the interaction between the state and the major sectors of that nation's economy. Think of it as laying out carrots and sticks through subsidies, tariffs, taxes, and other governmental regulations. So industrial policy is utilized across the globe. So it's not as if America 
or China or any of you know these countries are not utilizing the carrots and sticks to create certain outcomes and build national champions. Um, you know when it comes to certain industries or certain companies uh, within their their economic mix. Um, the issue that really is different with China than most is just to the extent in which they do it. It's far reaching, whereas in some industry, you know, some countries like you take a Saudi Arabia, for example, obviously Aramco is the center of their industrial base, how their country has a certain national wealth. And the, you know, Saudis will do everything to make sure that oil, the oil prices are protected or that they protect their market share. The difference with this is that China is doing it in almost every industry that they touch. Sometimes they're doing it successfully. Other times they're not doing it as successfully. And that's really a lot of the times where there becomes issues and friction between free market societies like the United States and, and Europe and China. So, for example, uh, you take certain industries that kind of make sense to be centralized, whether it's a railway system, maybe a healthcare system, you know, even an energy or, or a grid system across the country. And you say, OK. Like, it doesn't make sense for there to be a ton of competition because, number one, it's highly capital intensive at the outset. And number two, you don't need four railways right next to each other. You don't need all of these different competing hospitals necessarily all on the same street corner. But when you look at other industries that are receiving subsidies, unlike those that I just mentioned, you know, for example, in the semiconductor industry, in the shipbuilding industry, there becomes excesses that you can see in the Chinese market where really they're propping up uncompetitive businesses that might not have an experienced track record. But China is pretty much saying that they don't care if they lose. They don't care if they lose revenues as long as they start or they lose profitability as long as they take market share. And so that's led to this really large overcapacity problem. And the overcapacity problem has brought down global prices significantly, which is obviously undercut sometimes by hook or by crook, the global price of goods. And it's distorted it to the point where there starts to be um, a feedback mechanism in certain democracies like the United States or European Union that feel like they're kind of getting the short end of the stick on globalization. So that's just a little overview. Uh, I know that there's some more specific examples that we'll go into later to talk about where the battlefield really is between China and the United States on ideas, uh, between China and the United States on business, and between China and the United States on uh, what the what the value is of the state and what the value is of the individual. And I'm sure we're going to cover that probably in great detail. So, Tug, you mentioned that China sort of has its hand in the allocation of capital to certain industries in their economy that they see fit um, and sort of what fits their own personal agenda. Do you think that because they're doing this, that it has an adverse effect on um, growth in that specific sector? Yeah, Kevin, that's that's an interesting point you bring up. Bring up and, and, and yes, I do. And in short, I, I do believe that uh, the system of subsidization of certain industries has actually hurt China's ability to be innovative. Uh, if you look at an economy the size of China, you would think that they would have uh, a globally known car brand, for example. They don't have any competitors to uh, some of the um, European or American car brands um, that are available. 
um, across the globe. Uh, if you look at the fact that they don't have an alternative to Airbus or Boeing uh, that's globally recognized, that's also kind of a sign that uh, innovation um, and also allocation of resources within their economy might not necessarily be efficient. Uh, and then you look at certain industries, sp- specifically shipbuilding, uh, where China said, we're going to be number one. And we're going to be number one by sacrificing profit and profitability. And we're going to subsidize, you know, this industry to the hilt. So what happened was China sunk 550 billion yuan, which is equivalent to roughly 80 billion U.S. dollars, give or take the date uh, on which that number was published. And you see that the net profit from the entire shipbuilding industry, although China did achieve its goal of being number one, uh, is actually only 20% of the initial subsidy investment that the Chinese government made. So in total, I I do think that there is a a bit of sapping, not actually more than a bit. I think there's quite a lot of sapping of of industry and innovation uh, because of the propping up and bloating of very young uh, companies that are entering a market that is also kind of nascent uh, and young in China itself. Um, you know, that's obviously one way in which China manipulates, uh, you know, certain outcomes within its market system. It's uh, obviously a, a state capitalism, uh, so to speak. Um, but they're also, you know, using currency manipulation and, and so on and so forth to to do to, to achieve that end as well. So, you know, Kev, I'd like to hear a little bit more about currency and what your perspective is on that and its impact on the Chinese economy and global trade. Yeah, absolutely. That's something we hear about a lot. Our current president talks a lot about China, as we know. That's why we're doing this episode here. And one of those important topics is the currency relationship with the yuan and the U.S. dollar. And talk to whoever you want, but Traditionally, I think most people believe that the Chinese currency is undervalued comparatively um, to the U.S. dollar. Um, And there's a couple reasons, fundamental reasons for that being the case. Um, First off, we talked about how much that the U.S. owes China in debt. They own a pretty good portion. I think they're actually second behind Japan um, in how much debt they own of the U.S., Um, and that has an effect on, on our currency relationship with their currency. So we talked a little bit about how we have a general trade deficit every year with China. Um, and what that means is that we are importing goods from them, and therefore we're sending dollars to China um, for in exchange for their goods. Um, so what that basically does is it sends, I think, close to 350 to 400 billion each year uh, over to China in dollars. And then what happens is they fund our debt by buying treasuries. Um, and that's, you know, why they own so much of our debt. Um, and basically what that does for the currency relationship is instead of selling our dollars on the market, uh, to buy their own currency back, um, in order to sort of repatriate it into their economy and use for, um, any kind of national, uh, uh, spending, it's now in debt. So they basically make an investment with it Um, and therefore those dollars aren't sold on the open market. Um, so our currency stays stronger and their currency, uh, tends to stay a little more devalued in comparison to the U S dollar. 
Um, as we talked about, uh, China is more of an export nation. Uh, that's kind of how they've built their economic uh, stronghold in second place right behind the U.S. over the years. Um, as Ben and Tug both mentioned. Um, and so this currency devaluation plays a key part in that strategy. Um, and the reason behind that is that if their currency is cheap, that makes their domestic goods that they're selling abroad relatively cheaper for anybody, any other countries that want to buy their goods. Um, so for the U.S., we can't comparatively make a good that is relatively the same price domestically as we can um, or as China can and export to us because of the currency differential. Um, and that you know, leads to our, our large trade deficit with China. And uh, it's a key strategy for them um, in maintaining their, their stronghold on the market. Um, if their currency was to appreciate, they would have um, less of a comparative advantage compared to other countries' goods. Um, so therefore, that sort of is a key reason why they keep their currency um, a little more devalued than we think that uh, the free market would probably have it valued at if they were to repatriate those uh, Chinese yuan into their own economy. Um, we also want to talk a little bit about Chinese debt and uh, sort of like, since they're such a big owner of U.S. bonds and U.S. treasuries, you know, what does that sort of mean for China and also the U.S.? Um, is it a risk? Is it, uh, you know, it's definitely something to consider, but what, what are the implications of that? Yeah, I'm actually going to jump in here because I probably should have talked about this when I was talking about the trade war. Um, but the implications of China having so much U.S. debt, a lot of people talk about it, especially relative or involved in that same conversation about the trade war, because people will say, doesn't that count as leverage for China? Like, what happens if they just sell that on the open market? Um, and the response to that is like, yes, if they sold that debt on the open market, it would tank the U.S. economy and financial system. Um, but at the same time, that would also be like taking a massive write-off on Chinese investments, which would be shooting themselves in the foot. And then even furthermore beyond that, like the entire global financial system is somewhat reliant on the United States. So that would put the entire world in a financial tailspin. I don't think anybody involved wants that. Um, so it's kind of one of those things where it's like you either like you do or be damned. So I don't think that's a lever that they'll ever pull. I think that would be disastrous across the board. Um, that said, that is something that China is very acutely aware of. And back in 2015, they released this vision called like the China 2025 vision. And in that vision, it's really oriented on how to get China to be a like massive player on a global scale and on the world stage. Um, and then also how to get the Chinese currency, the yuan, um, to be one of the most fun, like internationally recognized and accepted currencies on the global stage. Um, that same plan is kind of what Tug alluded to earlier about Chinese government use, like funding and, and giving liquidity to some of these private companies. Um, and it's really like it's become a problem. And the reason why it's become a problem are two things that are in the headlines all the time right now, Huawei and TikTok. Um, these are two things that I, I'm sure that some of you have heard of Huawei. I know you have all heard of TikTok. It's all the rage right now. Um, and the, the way that we like to think about it is that it's basically spyware masquerading as a social media platform. But the problem with these two things is that China or these Chinese companies, regardless of whether or not they truly do have ties to the government and are feeding the government data, information, um, secrets, etc., 
they have the perception that they are because China has basically created this mandate that they're going to provide liquidity into private companies and they're going to take whatever they want from private companies in terms of data. Um, and they also have a massive amount of censorship over the general populace in China. And so this has really become a hot, contentious conversation of like, do companies or do countries, excuse me, want to rely on a company like Huawei to build out a 5G network that is going to become um, incredibly important in terms of like their telecom industries. So like the EU was thinking about having Huawei come in um, and build out their 5G networks, but ended up pulling out due to U.S. pressure. U.S. won't let Huawei anywhere near the U.S. Um, these other companies like TikTok, where, I mean, really what it is is a bunch of preteens like thinking that they're dance stars and putting out this content that's becoming wildly viral overnight. Um, but what, it, what you don't know and what, it, what is underneath is like fluffy user interface that like seems great and fun is that it's collecting a massive amount of data on the people that are using it, both like what other apps they have on their phone. It can see what you copy to your clipboard. So if you copy your social security number, that could be um, like up in the air or violated, et cetera. So all of these companies that regardless of what their intentions are and regardless of whether they're feeding data to the, to China or to like the government of China, uh, the perception is that they are. And so this is something where like the U S is evaluating, like, should we potentially put a ban on TikTok? Personally, I don't think it'll happen. I mean, like I, I hate TikTok. I think it would be great if it did happen, but like I'm of the opinion that TikTok won't get banned in the U S straight up just because like people will claim free speech and will probably end up getting pretty mad about it. Um, I know that some of us feel differently. Todd, you're giving me a look. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that there's a, a lot of latitude that uh, the federal government in the United States has when it comes to uh, national security. Um, understand that anything that is uh, even tangentially related to the Chinese government or any uh, corporations that are related uh, to it uh, is going to be of strict scrutiny um, by our Treasury Department, by our Commerce Department. Um, and then ultimately, uh, there's a, enough pressure from the White House here. Um, and then I think that you get into the, the current politics of, of the uh, age of COVID-19 um, that kind of casts a pall uh, on China uh, and its relationships, um, both non-government and governmental to the United States. And, uh, you know, Ben, I, 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 I know that you believe in in the First Amendment being able to protect TikTok. Um, I think at the same time, there's going to be a lot of pressure, um, both from American, at the American industrial level um, or our innovation level that says, hey, we're going to build an alternative to TikTok. You know, TikTok, we can ban it because we can build something as an alternative, which, you know, is there a little uh, scent of... Um, you know, an oligopoly being developed. Yeah. But Instagram said they're going to do it today. And, and I think that that's probably going to be the case. So I would lean towards the fact that TikTok will be, uh, will be banned, uh, in the United States. And, and the precedent is set up, um, on China's side, uh, pretty, pretty deeply and significantly, uh, because China's banned the New York times. Uh, they've banned the wall street journal. They've banned CNN, Fox news. They've banned Facebook. YouTube, Wikipedia, they've banned Twitter, Instagram, Google. That's a huge amount of American uh, communications or or news outlets or social media outlets that have been banned by China. So 
the in terms of reciprocity, I, I have to think that we'd be seeing that handed down rather soon. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point. I'd, I'd argue that just because China's put all that censorship out there and shut down those sites and, and, and like platforms doesn't necessarily mean that the U.S. will do the same. Just like I think that's something we criticize about them a lot. And so if we start following suit, it'll be a little bit hypocritical. Um, that said, like, I, I still don't think that it'll get banned. I would love it if it did. I'm a Facebook share, uh, Facebook shareholder, and I would expect a Facebook like shares to, to pop a little bit if that were to happen. So like, I'm all for banning TikTok. I don't use it. I don't care. Um, but anyway, those are some of the the hot topics in terms of like what is happening from a data transfer between these private institutions and the Chinese government. Do other countries need to be wary of it, cautious about it? Um, I'm of the opinion yes. I assume you guys are also of the opinion yes. But Generally, that's a high-level overview of China, the relationship between the United States, China, trade war, um, and some of the, the nuances between the currencies, the technologies, and some of their like data privacy regulations and rules. So thank you guys very much for joining us today. We had a good time. Hope you guys had a good time. And we'll catch you guys next week. Cheers, boys. Content within the Stocks and Spirits podcast is for informational purposes only and expresses only the opinions and views of the hosts. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in our podcast constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by the hosts or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Nothing within the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice of any kind. We try to provide content that is true and accurate as the data is publishing. However, we give no assurance or warranty regarding the accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents. We assume no responsibility for information contained in this podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements.